Well, this is a great day. Uh, we're gathered together as the body of Christ, worshiping our great God and Savior. Uh, we've received new members into our congregation. Uh, we have a, appointed a, a deacon whom God has provided uh, for us. And now we are looking to God's word together. Deacons are servants, and every believer is to be a servant. When the Lord Jesus called us to follow him, it was a call unto service. To serve him as Lord, to serve him as master, and to serve him as Lord and master, we have to serve one another. Our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ uh, every believer is to be a servant without exception. The, the apostles were no exception. You know, if, if there was anybody who was an exception to the responsibility uh, to serve brothers and sisters in the church, we'd say it would be the apostles. But the apostles were not an exception. They, they were, in fact, leaders in serving. They set the example in serving, as we will see in our text this morning, which has a lot to do with serving, sacrificial serving. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Please stand in honor of the word of God if you are able. Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an, an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to restrain, I'm sorry, to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This passage is in the middle uh, of a section that began uh, with chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. The apostle in this large section appears to be responding to something that the Corinthians wrote in their letter regarding food offered to idols. They had written Paul a letter, and Paul is responding to that letter, and they have apparently written something in that letter regarding food offered to idols, and Paul is now responding to that. In this large section, Paul is addressing two main problems. First of all, in chapter 8, he addresses the Corinthians' lack of love for some of their brothers. Corinthian believers were eating in the temples of idols for social purposes, not for religious purposes, not, not for worship, but they were eating in the temples of idols for social purposes, eating food that had been offered to idols. Being armed with the knowledge that an idol is nothing and that there is only one true God, they thought they could eat without committing the sin of idolatry. 
But Paul points out that their behavior as they were eating in these temples of idols, Paul points out that their behavior had the potential to embolden some of their weak Christian brothers who had been idolaters before being saved and and, and who viewed this as idolatry, that this had the potential to embolden them to do the same, to embolden them to eat in the temples of idols, to eat the food sacrificed to the idols. And the effect would be to encourage their brothers to fall back into idolatry. The effect would be spiritually destructive to their brothers, whom Paul calls uh, weak, their weak brothers. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for such a lack of love. The use of their knowledge, the knowledge about idols being nothing, the knowledge that there is only one true God, the use of their knowledge was not being governed by love. That was the first problem that Paul addresses in this section. That's chapter 8. There's also a second problem that Paul addresses in this large section. In chapter 10, the apostle will address the idolatrous nature of eating in the temples of idols. The idolatrous nature of eating food that they know has been offered to an idol. He will say, you are participating with demons by doing this. Now, in between chapter 8 and chapter 10, we have chapter 9, which we begin to study today. And chapter 9 supports what Paul taught in chapter 8 about foregoing your rights for the sake of your brethren. Paul was telling the Corinthians, you think that you have this right to eat in these temples because you have this knowledge And in your mind, you are trying to disassociate the eating for a social purpose with the religious nature of it all. All Now, Paul says, you're taking this right, and by use of this right, you are destroying your weak brother. Now, so Paul has been teaching them, you need to forego your supposed right for the sake of your brother. Now, in chapter 9, he's supporting that. I want you to observe the word right back in chapter 8, verse 9. In chapter 8, verse 9, he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That this right of yours does not somehow become a temptation to your brother, to return to his old sinful ways. Now, this word right here is a key word in today's text. You're going to see it repeatedly in chapter 9. Now, I want you to observe how Paul widened the subject at the end of chapter 8, in verse 13, from the issue of food sacrificed to idols to something wider. In verse 13 of chapter 8, he said, Therefore... If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul here is not talking now about the possibility of Paul eating food that was sacrificed to idols or not. He's he's bringing up another issue. There's the whole issue with the Jews and the Gentiles of how under the law of Moses, certain foods were unclean. And the Israelites were not to eat those unclean foods. Now, in Christ, we have freedom to eat pork. In Christ, we have freedom to eat shrimp. The Israelites under the Old Covenant didn't have that freedom. But Paul says, he broadens it out. He he applies the principle to his own life. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble in any way, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he's broadened it out. Now, in chapter 9, Paul gives a concrete example from his life of foregoing one's rights for the sake of others in service of Christ. He gives a concrete example from his own life 
of knowledge governed by love. And it is an example for us to apply to the situations that we face. We do not face the situation that Paul faced. We probably don't face the situation that the Corinthians faced. But there's other situations that we face. And this is an example that we're going to study for us to apply to the situations that we do face. I want you to observe the conclusion of this whole section in chapter 11, verse 1. Where is Paul going? Look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he speaks in this whole section of how he lives, and he sets himself forward as an example. An example that we are to imitate in the situations in which we find ourselves. That's why Paul is saying what he says in our text. Now, Paul's example comes at the very end of our text. I hope you noticed it when we read it. The example comes at the very end. In order for us to understand Paul's example that we are to follow, he first has to establish two things in this text. First of all, he has to establish his apostleship. That's verses 1 to 2. And second, he has to establish his rights as an an apostle. That's in verses 3 through 12a. We've got to grasp that if we understand the example he sets for us at the end. So let's let's look at these one by one. Uh, First of all, uh, Paul's apostleship. What we want to understand um, as we look at the whole passage is Paul's example of foregoing rights for the sake of others in service of Christ that we might do the same. First of all, we have to see his apostleship. Look with me at verse 1. Am I not free? Now, the obvious answer is yes. Yes, Paul, you are free. Every Christian has certain freedoms in Christ. In the example given in the previous verse, Paul is free to eat various meats, including meat that was unclean under the Mosaic law. In the example that Paul will give in chapter 9, he is free to receive financial support from the churches he has planted and in which he ministers. Now this word freedom, am I not free? This word freedom is synonymous with the word right that Paul uses repeatedly in this section. Am I not free? Second, in verse 1, he asks, am I not an apostle? And the answer was obviously, yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Now this is very important And it is related to what else Paul says in verses 1 and 2. He goes on in verse 1 and asks, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He's saying, Have I not seen the resurrected Lord? Has not the resurrected Lord appeared to me? As an apostle, Paul had seen the resurrected Lord. The answer is yes, he had seen him. The next question in verse 1. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? The answer is yes. The Corinthian church was Paul's workmanship in the Lord. Now notice those words, in the Lord. Because it was in the Lord, the Lord received the glory. The Corinthian church was the fruit of Paul's apostolic ministry. The apostle Paul planted the church. And so Paul could say... You are my workmanship in the Lord. Let's continue with verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The idea here is that there were other churches that were not the immediate recipients of Paul's apostolic ministry. Just think of how the gospel started in Jerusalem. Then it went to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to Gentile areas, towards the ends of the earth, throughout the Roman Empire. There were many churches uh, that were not 
directly uh, impacted at this point by the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But the Corinthian church, like other churches Paul planted, was, as Paul says here, the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now this is this idea of of a seal. It's something from the culture of that day that you have to understand in order to understand what Paul is saying here, that the church was the seal of his uh, apostleship. A seal in that day signified ownership or authentication. Seals were used on containers of merchandise. They were used on letters. Now, you might see someone do something fancy today. We received a, a wedding invitation. Um, from Nicole and Caleb. And if I remember right, um, on that envelope, there was a, a, a seal. Uh, it's, it looks like a piece of wax um, that has been used to, to seal the envelope closed, and there's something written on that seal. All right? Seals were used all the time uh, in the Greco-Roman world, and there would be something that would be stamped in that seal, it's kind of like a signature, right? That would uniquely identify the person who placed the seal there. You can think about how the tomb of Jesus was sealed before the resurrection, uh, when the religious leaders uh, wanted to make sure that the disciples were not going to come and take the body. Um, they asked Pilate to put guards there and to put his seal on there, and so probably Pilate's name. Uh, or something similar, was on that seal, on that tomb, uh, saying, by the authority of the governor, no one is to open this. So seals were very important. They were put on containers that contained merchandise. Uh, They were used on letters that were sent and other things. They indicated the authenticity of what was inside. And they prevented the contents from being substituted or altered. A seal was the official representation of the authority of the one who sent the merchandise or sent the letter. What was under the seal was guaranteed to be genuine. Now Paul says the Corinthian church was a seal of his apostleship. In other words... The church's existence authenticated Paul as an apostle. Because it was planted by the apostle Paul. It was nurtured by the apostle Paul. Its very existence was a seal, an authentication of Paul as an apostle. So what does it mean that Paul was an apostle? Yes, am I not an apostle? The answer is yes. You are the seal of my apostleship. It's understood. What does it mean that Paul was an apostle? You have to understand this. The word apostle literally means a sent one. Someone who has been sent by another. The word would speak of ambassadors, representatives, messengers, The word was used of someone who was sent as a representative. And the Greek word is sometimes used in the New Testament to speak of someone sent by a church as a representative of that church. An example is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23. Paul is talking there about the brothers from various churches who would take the offering from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.23, And as for our brothers, they are, the ESV says, messengers of the churches. Messengers is translated from the same Greek word apostolos as the word apostle. So that word... Apostle is used in a more general or the more general sense here in 2 Corinthians 8.23 to speak of representatives of local churches. Alright, so there was this offering. Multiple Gentile churches were contributing towards it. This offering was to be taken uh, from this Gentile area to Jerusalem 
to give to the, the church there, to give to the saints there. And so you had representatives from multiple Gentile churches who together carried this gift to Jerusalem. Right, so you see the idea there, the fundamental idea of an, an apostle, a representative. These individuals were representatives of churches. Okay? We have the same idea in Philippians 2.25, the same word. In Philippians 2.25, Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. That word messenger comes from the same Greek word, apostolos, as the word apostle. Again, as in the previous verse that I read, here the word is used of the representative of a church. Here it speaks of Epaphroditus as... <coughs> Excuse me. Speaks of Epaphroditus as a representative of the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi sent, remember, literally it means a sent one. The church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul to minister to his need on behalf of the church. All right? So whenever you hear this word apostle, you have to ask yourself who are they sent by? Who do they represent? Here, in these instances, the word is used to someone who represented churches, who were sent by churches. Now, the great majority of uses in the New Testament of the word apostolos refer to the apostles of Jesus Christ. Those who were sent by Jesus Christ as his official representatives. So we've talked about those who represented churches. Now it's those who are the official representatives of Christ. Those who are officially sent out by Christ as his representatives, his authoritative representatives. All of Christ's apostles met three qualifications. The first qualification for an apostle of Jesus Christ was that they were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen by Him. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, we read, And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired. And they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and then were given the names of the other 11. So the 11 apostles, the 11, I'm sorry, the the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, they were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul speaks of his apostleship. Uh, He says in Galatians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul is making very clear at the beginning of Galatians that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was chosen by God the Father and Jesus Christ. So first of all, all of Christ's apostles were chosen by the Lord Jesus. They weren't chosen by men. They were chosen by Christ. The second qualification of Christ's apostles was that they were given authority to perform the signs of an apostle. These men were given authority to perform perform the signs of an apostle. We read just a minute ago in Mark 3.15 that when Christ chose the twelve as apostles, he appointed them, quote, to cast out demons. It wouldn't have just been to cast out demons. It also would have been been to, to, to heal to perform miracles. The twelve were given authority by Jesus Christ to perform the signs, the miraculous signs of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul, when he speaks about his apostolic ministry in Corinth, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders, and mighty works. So the Apostle Paul, he performed the signs of an apostle. 
Signs, wonders, mighty works. That's the second qualification for an apostle. They were given authority to perform the signs of an apostle. And the third qualification was that they, they had to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They had to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. When Peter spoke in Acts chapter 1 of how a man was needed to take the place in the apostleship from which Judas had turned aside, Peter says in Acts 1, 21 and 22, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So this was an important part of what it meant to be an apostle. All the apostles were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Christ, after the resurrection, appeared to them, showing that he was raised from the dead. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul speaks of how Christ appeared to him. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, is where I'll start. Verse 4, this is part of the gospel. That he, that is Christ, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he goes through the, the history of some of the appearances that Christ made after the resurrection all these appearances were before the ascension except the last one. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That was when Saul was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. The resurrected Christ appeared to Saul on that road and commissioned Saul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. So the last appearance of the resurrected Christ was to Paul. Christ's apostles were his authoritative revelatory agents after his ascension. Christ had said on the night before he went to the cross, I have many more things to say to you. I do not have time to tell them to you now. But I will give you the Spirit. And through the Spirit, I will reveal these things to you, that you might speak these things and proclaim these things, the things of Christ. The apostles were Christ's authoritative, revelatory agents after his ascension. The apostles laid the doctrinal foundation of the church. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And their prophets is the New Testament prophets. Just see how this term apostles and prophets is used elsewhere in Ephesians. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The authoritative teaching of the apostles laid the doctrinal foundation of the church. The apostles received, preached, and wrote divine revelation from Christ. And they confirmed that divine word through signs and wonders that were of the same nature as the signs and wonders that Jesus performed. Just compare Jesus, the signs and wonders that Jesus did in the Gospels to the signs and the wonders that the apostles did in the book of Acts, you see they're of the same nature. Now, are there apostles today? No, there are not apostles today. 
not apostles in the sense of holding the office of apostle. There are no apostles of Jesus Christ today. We're talking about apostles as authoritative representatives of Christ. There are none today. I want you to observe what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8 says that bears on this. Come back to 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The last resurrection appearance of Christ was to Paul. The last. And it was unusual. As to one untimely born, it was unusual because it was after the ascension. Not during the 40 days that Jesus was there on the earth after the resurrection. So there's no one else after the apostle Paul and, and, and the, the other apostles that can claim, Jesus has appeared to me and has made me an apostle. No, Paul was the last, the last to receive a resurrection appearance. There is nobody today that meets those three qualifications that we went through. Since the death of the apostle John, there is no one who is chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle, given authority from Christ to perform the signs of an apostle, and is a witness of the resurrected Christ. No one. When the apostles were leaving the scene, they did not appoint new apostles to lead the church in their place. Rather, throughout their ministry, they appointed elders to lead local churches. The apostles laid the foundation. And once that foundation was laid, then the church was to be led not by apostles, but led by elders. Very different. Now, despite the teaching of the Bible, there are people today who claim to be apostles. And there's a whole movement that has been termed the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation refers to churches which advocate for the restoration of church governance by the offices of prophet and apostle who hold leadership over evangelist pastors and teachers. It's completely unbiblical. You need to understand that today's quote-unquote apostles are not true apostles of Christ. And if someone claims to be an apostle, ask them, what do you mean by that? And what are the qualifications in Scripture for being the kind of apostle that you're talking about being? Now let's come back to our text. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And then the apostle proceeds to speak in the next section of our text of his rights as an apostle. His rights as an apostle. He wants us to understand a right that he forgoes for the sake of others in service of Christ. Look at verse 3. This is, this is my defense to those who would examine me. That's how he introduces what is coming now in, the, in these verses. What follows is a defense of his rights as an apostle. Look at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? In context... Paul is speaking of his right to receive food and drink from the churches he has planted and the churches in which he ministers, or financial compensation so that he can purchase food and drink. He chooses this right of his as an illustration because it concerns food. The Corinthians needed to forego a right they thought they had to certain food, and now Paul talks about a right he has as an apostle to food and drink. This right that he talks of is a right that pastors have as well. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18a say, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Which is the exact same law in scripture that Paul appeals to in our text in 1 Corinthians. 
Paul continues here in our text in verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Who are the brothers of the Lord? It's the brothers of the Lord Jesus, as usually that title, the Lord in the New Testament, refers to Christ. Who are the brothers of the Lord? They are his half-brothers who believed in him after his resurrection. The Gospels list four half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, Joseph and Mary uh, did get married, and they did have sexual relations after Jesus was born. Uh, Mary was kept a virgin until Jesus was born, but not afterwards. And so Mary and Joseph had children together. Their names are given to us in the Gospels. And so these brothers would be half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, they, they have the same biological mother as Jesus, Mary, um, but their biological father is Joseph, whereas Jesus has no biological father because he was born uh, in a virg- of, of, a, of a virgin conception by the Holy Spirit. So these are half-brothers of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, which we read earlier in Paul's list of appearances that the resurrected Christ made, said that Christ appeared to James. And it would appear that the James there was James the brother of Jesus, not the James who was one of the twelve. But that he appeared there to James, uh, who became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and is spoken of in the book of Acts and appears to have written the epistle that bears his name, James. The epistle of Jude was written by another half-brother of Jesus. So we know of at least two of his half-brothers who, after the resurrection, believed. Jesus appeared to his brother, James. James saw the resurrected Christ. Very soon afterwards, in Acts, he's leading the church in Jerusalem. So it certainly appears that when Christ appeared to him, uh, that James believed then and there um, in Jesus as the promised Messiah and as the Son of God and became a follower of Jesus. Probably something similar happened to Jude and possibly uh, one one or two of Jesus' other half brothers. So here we see here in verse 5, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is another name for Peter, who who seemed to have been well known to the church in Corinth because Paul has referred to Cephas earlier in this epistle. Ministers of the word have a right to marry a believer and a right to bring their wife along with them in ministry travels, and a right to receive financial support that meets her needs as well. And it is implied that if the couple is raising children who are still financially dependent, that their needs should be met by the church along with the needs of the man and his wife. Verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Paul is using some sarcasm here. There were times when Paul and Barnabas voluntarily worked with their hands in a trade while planting a church. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18 to see that Paul did this very thing uh, when he first came to Corinth. The book of Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Verse 1, After this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, uh, uh, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So what we see here is that when Paul came to Corinth, he worked as a tent maker. Uh, he he not, uh, evidently already had some experience as a tent maker. Uh, here he finds two other Jewish tent makers, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. 
And uh, he, he lives with them, he works with them, he works with his hand as a tent maker uh, to make a living while he is in Corinth. Now Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. First Corinthians four, verse eleven. Paul writes, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure. There's a reason why Paul is talking about how he came in weakness. To Corinth, and how he lived among them in weakness. And as he's talking about his weakness, at least weakness in the eyes of others, he says in verse 12, we worked with our own hands. During those 18 months, while Paul was in Corinth, ministering there, planting that church, establishing that church, he was working with his own hands as a tent maker, as we saw in Acts chapter 18. Now, there were other times when Paul accepted financial support. In the book of Acts chapter 16, we read that when Paul went to Philippi, he and his fellow missionaries stayed in Lydia's home. Lydia was a woman of some wealth. She believed the gospel very soon after Paul arrived there in Philippi. Um, and she persuaded Paul and his fellow missionaries uh, to stay in her home. So she financially supported Paul and his fellow missionaries during their time in Philippi. And in Paul's epistle that he would later write to the Philippians, he speaks of financial gifts that he received from the Philippian church when he was in Thessalonica, which would have been soon after he left Philippi, and also gifts that he received before writing the epistle to the Philippians. Epaphroditus delivered those gifts. However, while Paul did receive financial support in some cities that he ministered in, Paul refused to accept financial support from the Corinthians. He had a right to receive financial support from the Corinthians, but he forewent that right and instead worked as a tent maker to make a living while ministering the gospel. Paul continues in our text. Come back to chapter 9. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? What's the answer? No one. No one serves as a soldier at his own expense. No one works a part-time job so that they can be a soldier. No, they receive a full-time income from the government as they work as a soldier, as it ought to be. He continues in verse 7. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Answer, no one. Next question. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Answer, no one. Everyone who tends a flock gets some of the milk. Does anyone who plants a vineyard get some of the, the, the fruit? I don't know if you know that sheep are actually milked. Our family did go to a farm uh, near Basking Ridge, um, and they, they raise sheep there. And you can actually take a tour and see them milking sheep. And you can actually eat cheese there that has been made from sheep's milk. Sheep would be milked just as goats would be milked. Paul asks, or who tends a flock? Flock would include goats and sheep. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. The point of these three questions about the soldier, about the planter of the vineyard, about the shepherd, the point of these three questions in this verse is that it is customary, it is rightful, it is expected that workers will be paid for their work. And why should it not be true for God's workers as well? When a man truly devotes himself to planting a church, or shepherding a church, or serving the Lord in a church like a soldier would serve his commanding officer, he should not have to do it at his own expense. He has a right to be taken care of by the church. 
That's Paul's point here. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? <coughs> Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, in the law of Moses. The law that he quotes refers to the practice of using an ox to draw a threshing sledge over grain in order to release the kernels from the stalk. The threshing sledge is very, very heavy. And so that, that the weight of this sledge being pulled across the grain, uh, what, what it does is it, 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 it frees the kernels from the stalk so that you can collect the kernels and, 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 and use them. This is called threshing. And you'll find this word threshing throughout the Bible. Now, the farmer would make the ox walk continuously around a circle. All right, so the grain would first be put down within this circle, and then the ox is attached to something in the middle, usually, and then he is made to go around continually in this circle, pulling this sledge behind him, uh, which uh, crushes the, uh, the, the grain releasing the kernels. He's threshing the grain. Now, the law forbid a farmer from muzzling the ox while at work. This is God's law. God's law forbid a farmer from muzzling the ox while it worked. Rather than muzzling the ox, the farmer was to allow the ox to eat the grain while he worked. Uh, the, the ox is, is involved in doing everything that's needed so the farmer can use that grain. Um, now, the ox who's working, uh, he needs to be allowed to eat the grain while he's working. And Paul asks rhetorically, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? Now, the ESV that I'm reading out of uses the word entirely. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? I'm not using the newest edition of the ESV. I would actually prefer the, the newest edition, but the newest edition didn't have a Bible in the format that I wanted it to be in, so I stuck with my, my older one. But the current ESV translates it this way. Does he not speak certainly for our sake? That, that's really a better translation. That's why they changed it. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Uh, does he not speak certainly for our sake? Paul here is not saying that God has no concern for animals. In Matthew 6.26, our Lord said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The Psalms teach us that God feeds the animals. God does care for the animals, but we who are made in his image are of far more value to him than the animals. And so he who feeds them, he supplies for us, and we can trust him in that. Now, Paul is saying that the law was not only meant for the welfare of livestock. Paul is saying that law about not muzzling the ox, that law was meant even more for the welfare of human workers who are of more value than animals in God's sight. And further, if God shows concern for the sustenance of working beasts like an ox, he's even more concerned for the sustenance of those who give themselves to serving him. Both the ox and the minister of the gospel have a divinely ordained right to be nourished from their labor. And Paul as an apostle had that right. Verse 10. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the answer is no. It's not too much. Like a farmer sowing a field, the minister of the gospel sows spiritual things. The minister of the gospel sows the gospel. The minister of the gospel sows the word of God. He sows spiritual things. He tends to spiritual needs in the flock. 
Like a farmer sowing a field, the minister of the gospel sows spiritual things. And Paul says he has a right to reap material provision from those whom he serves spiritually. And it's not just common sense that says this. Paul says God's law gives the minister of the gospel this right. God's law gives the apostle this right. Let's continue in verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even mourn? Apollos was probably included in this and received financial support. We learn earlier in the book of how Apollos came after Paul left Corinth. And and he, in a sense, watered the field that Paul had planted. He continued the work that Paul had begun um, as he ministered the word of God to that new church in Corinth. And he probably is referred to here. And Apollos apparently received financial support uh, from the church in Corinth as he ministered among them. But it wouldn't have just been Apollos. Paul used the plural here. Other ministers of the gospel received financial support from the Corinthian church. Now Paul asks rhetorically, do I not share in this right as well? This right to receive financial support from you. Do I not? If you look closely at verse 12, do not we even more? Do not I, as an apostle, even more have this right to receive financial support from you. As the apostolic planter of their church, who had ministered among them over 18 months, and who was still a father to them, he had an even greater right to financial support than others from them. But what does the apostle say next in verse 12? Look at the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This is the last point in our text, and this is the whole point of all Paul has been saying in our text. Everything has been driving to this point. Paul's example of foregoing rights for the sake of others. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, we endure anything, meaning all the additional stress of working to support themselves. It was really hard work being a tent maker on top of ministering the gospel. I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul did the same thing in Thessalonica that he did in Corinth as far as being a tent maker and not taking financial support from those to whom he ministered. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm sorry, that is not the passage I am looking for. Well, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for a second example of this. You can find the first one later on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Notice in verse 8 that Paul says, with toil and labor. That speaks of hard, hard work. With toil and labor, we worked night and day. 
It wasn't that he just ministered to the church on Sundays and then he worked as a tent maker Monday through Friday. No, he ministered to the church throughout the day and at night he worked as a tent maker. All right, he was working hard. He was doing two full-time jobs. Now, there were very re- various reasons why Paul worked as a tent maker in some of the cities in which he ministered. Various reasons. But it was never for his own sake. It always was for the sake of others and the sake of the gospel. We see here with the Thessalonians, it was to set them an example of how they were to work hard. Not to be lazy. Now, what does Paul have in mind in our text? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, when he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I labor night and day in Corinth. I work full-time as a minister of the gospel, and I work full-time as a tent maker, rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He did this so he wouldn't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. What does Paul have in mind here? Well, we receive some insight from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. He says we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Corinth loved professional oratory. The orators were in it for the money. And when Paul first came to Corinth, he anticipated that there would soon be people who would preach God's word in Corinth for money's sake. And for the sake of the gospel, Paul wanted to have nothing to do with the professional orators. He wanted to distance himself in the minds of the Corinthians from those who were in it for the money. He wanted to distance himself from the orators in whom the Corinthians delighted. And Paul intentionally came to Corinth in weakness. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. You can look at it. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, I came to you in weakness. To include weakness in your eyes. Part of that weakness was he came as a tent maker. He came refusing to use his right as an apostle of receiving financial support from the church. Knowing the atmosphere in Corinth. Knowing the culture in Corinth. Knowing how he would be perceived by the Corinthians. He, does, he did this so that your faith might not rest in anything of men, but would rather rest in the power of God. In Corinth, he endured everything. He did not use his rights to financial support for the sake of the gospel of Christ. There were other cities where receiving financial support was not an obstacle. But in Corinth, Paul saw it as an obstacle to the gospel. That word obstacle in verse 12 is similar to the word stumbling block in chapter 8, verse 9. The apostle has given us in our text quite an example of foregoing rights for the sake of others in service to Christ. Think about it. Who would ordinarily give up the right to financial support from a church to whom you give your all? We know Paul. He would have given the church his all. He didn't hold anything back. Who would ordinarily give up the right to financial support from a church to whom you give your all? 
No one would ordinarily do that. This was a huge sacrifice on Paul's part. It was no small thing. After all Paul said in verses 1 through 12a, establishing that he is an apostle, and that as an apostle he has a right to full financial support, even more so than other ministers of the gospel, it would only make sense to us for him to accept financial support. And yet, he sacrificed this right for the sake of others, in love for the people of Corinth and in love for his Lord, that many would hear the gospel rightly and would be saved, and that Christ would receive all the glory and honor. The Apostle Paul goes through all of this in order that we would imitate him by likewise foregoing our rights for the sake of others in service to Christ. For the Corinthians, it meant foregoing the right that they thought they had to eat in the temples of idols for social purposes. Foregoing this right for the sake of their brothers who had been saved out of idolatry, their brothers whom they would they could destroy by such behavior. This passage in God's word is teaching you and me to sacrifice our rights for the sake of others in service to Christ. Beloved brethren, how do you need to apply this to your life? Where do you need to make sacrifices for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel? When we make a sacrifice, we're sacrificing something that we could very easily see as a right. I have a right to this. We're called the sacrifice. What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to show hospitality and have others into your home? It may not be easy for you. With your circumstances, it may not be easy for you to show hospitality and have others into your home. But in Scripture, we are to show hospitality to one another. We are to invite the brethren over to our home, that we might minister to them, that we might care for them. And the home is a perfect place for evangelism. We are to invite unbelievers into our home that we might evangelize them. That might not be easy for you, for whatever reason, to have other people into your home. There are certain rights that you have that can keep you from doing this. What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to show hospitality of others in your home? What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to fellowship and pray with your brethren on Wednesday evenings? We organize time of Bible study and prayer here every Wednesday. It's important in the life of our church. Now, for many, you have to make a sacrifice in order to come. What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to be there? To fellowship with the brethren, to pray with the brethren for their good and for the good of the church. What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to give generously to missions? You say, I have a right to all of my money. Maybe I give 10% to the church, but I have a a right to the next 90% of it. I have a right to use it on this and this and this. But the scriptures teach us to give generously. What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to give generously to missions? What rights do you need to sacrifice in order to be involved in the life of your local church? When we sacrifice for something, we communicate through that sacrifice that's important. You will sacrifice for what you see as truly important. Do you need to sacrifice your right to a career that proves to be an obstacle to gospel ministry? You might have a right to have that career, but if that career would be an obstacle to gospel ministry... Maybe it's a right that you need to sacrifice. Do you need to sacrifice your right to live in a certain neighborhood? Some neighborhoods consume a lot more of our resources, financial resources than other neighborhoods. Right? 
Obviously, we all would like to live in the very nice neighborhoods. Do you need to sacrifice your right to live in a certain neighborhood for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others? And on and on and go. We could add a lot of other examples to this. I'm just trying to prime the pump. I'm just trying to get you think in the practical terms. Trying to you think in terms of application. It boils down to this. Is your life about making sacrifices for the gospel and for your brethren? Or is your life about your rights? If Jesus came holding on to his rights, you would not be saved today. Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. But he humbled himself and he became a servant, even to the point of death, death upon the cross. No one has sacrificed their rights like Christ has sacrificed his. It's impossible for you to sacrifice more than Christ sacrificed for you. He had the glories of heaven, he was worshiped by the angels, rightly. And he came in humble form, veiling his glory behind his human nature that he added to his divine nature. He came in the form of a humble servant. Not with a crown on his head, not on a great war horse, not calling for accolades, but he came in a form that Isaiah prophesied and said that the coming Messiah is not going to be someone who looks desirable. He'll be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When men look on him, they'll want to turn away. He came in humble form. He laid down his life at Calvary for your salvation, for my salvation. He was raised on the third day in victory. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. The gospel has gone forth. The good news of Christ's death for our sins, his triumphant resurrection on the third day. The gospel calls upon all men, women, boys, and girls to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to follow him now. If we're going to follow him, it's going to require sacrificing rights because Christ sacrificed rights. It's going to require that we put the interest of others of our own because Christ put our interests ahead of his own. That's what Paul's calling us to. Don't get hung up in how different the Corinthian situation was from ours. Don't get hung up in how different Paul's right is that he's talking about than our rights. The point is not so much about the food. The point is not so much about the right to a financial remuneration. The point is yielding rights for the sake of others in service to Christ, to reflect Christ and to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We pray, Father, that you would use it in our hearts and lives as you intend. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.